Claudia was born two years after her dad returned home from service in World War II. She was raised in a Christian home, and at a very early age, she made the decision to live her life as a follower of Jesus. Then she moved into her teen years and went off one summer to this massive youth conference, hundreds and hundreds of teens coming together for a Christian experience. And during that week, one of the featured speakers was a man who had served on the Enola Gay. Some of you will know that name. That's the name of the bomber that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Now, particularly at that time, the story of the Enola Gay, the story of Hiroshima, the memories of World War II, all of that was very fresh. And so to have this man speak to the youth was incredibly relevant. So this man got up on the night he was supposed to speak and he talked about some of the terrifying experience of, of serving in a World War II bomber. And he talked particularly about that fateful day when they dropped the bomb. Talked about the plane flying off and watching that huge mushroom cloud come up. And he told the teens, all of those wartime experiences got me thinking about eternity and caused me to open up my heart to God and I became a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, it was a very powerful story and, and Claudia in particular was very moved by it because her dad not only had been a World War II veteran, he had been a World War II flyer, but he had never talked about his experiences. So when she got home from camp, she told her dad about this special speaker and then she learned for the very first time that her dad had served on the Enola Gay. But here's where the story gets interesting. Because her dad had never heard of the man who spoke. And after a bit of investigation, it turned out that the guy who spoke at the camp was an imposter. He'd not served on the Enola Gay. He'd never been in the military. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a very mixed up man who craved attention. And he had discovered that Christians were willing to pay him money to tell his made up story. And because his story was dramatic and compelling, too many Christians never bothered to check to find out if his story was true. And sadly, this guy wasn't alone. A few years later, during a time when Westerns were incredibly popular on TV, remember that era? Some of us do. <laughs> there was a grizzled old guy who started speaking at youth camps, and he claimed to be the last surviving member of the Jesse James gang. And he made a number of appearances before someone did the math and realized that any living member of that gang would have to be at least 130 years old. That man also was an imposter. Now those two guys I've mentioned were just, in reality, they were just low-level con artists and pretty emotionally sick. But over the centuries, all kinds of people have set out to deceive the church for all kinds of reasons. And for some people, it's about money and notoriety 
For some, it's about power and influence. And for some, it's about destroying the work of the kingdom of God. I hate to say it, but false prophets, false teachers, cult leaders, they just seem to keep showing up. And they all claim to have special insight into spiritual truth. They try to redefine what Jesus taught. And some even try to redefine who Jesus actually was. And all of this deceit has the potential to be incredibly harmful to the church. It's no surprise then that throughout the New Testament we find the apostles regularly warning believers to watch out for phonies. They warn the church about those who promote lies and deceit. People with wrong agendas. People who don't embrace God's truth. Those kind of people are always around. Many of them are seeking an audience to influence, and that's why we, the church, must be ever vigilant. And if we want to stick to God and stick to each other, then we must learn to practice spiritual discernment. One of the marks of a healthy church is that we help each other distinguish between truth and error so that we can hold firmly to God and His people. A healthy church practices spiritual discernment and that's what the Apostle John addresses in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6. to So we're going to begin with the first three verses where John tells us that spiritual discernment starts by assessing those who teach and claim to speak on behalf of God. Beloved, John writes to the church, Beloved, remember he talked a couple of weeks ago about how we are God's beloved children. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Before we dive into the details of those particular verses, I want to set some context for the whole passage. We've talked before about John's distinctive writing style style because it's rather circuitous. John will address a topic and then he kind of circles around and then he addresses it again and then he zooms off to make a side point and so on. And that in particular seems to be the pattern of chapters 3 and 4 which we've been working our way through. As we saw over the last couple of weeks, throughout chapter 3, John writes about love. He writes about love from one perspective, then he writes about love from another perspective. In chapter 4, verse 7, he once again is going to write at length about love. 
But here at the beginning of chapter 4, he inserts these six verses about testing the spirits. Kind of seems like an anomaly. If you were to write an outline of his thoughts, here's what it would look like. Love, love, test the spirits, love. (laughs) Now, Now that doesn't seem like a very orderly outline, does it? And it's fair to ask, why would John be even thinking about the issue of testing the spirits when he's in the midst of writing all of these wonderful things about love? After all, on the surface, those topics don't seem to have much to do with each other. And yet they do. They're actually related. You see, God loves us so much that he engaged in an incredible act of spiritual rescue. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we can be forgiven and become children of God. And now that we are God's kids, he loves us like a father, and he wants to protect us from the enemy of our souls. He wants to set guardrails on our lives to keep us from wandering into dangerous territory. And so he teaches us lovingly how to differentiate between truth and error. To help us understand that, here's an analogy. Think about a family who lives next to a busy street. So dad and mom build a fence around their front yard. And that fence allows the kids to play safely and makes it harder for them to run into the road and get hit by a car. And that fence clearly marks the difference between where it's safe and where it's dangerous. That fence is a tangible sign of protective parental love. In a similar way, the Heavenly Father speaks to us here through the Apostle John, urging us to test the spirits and explaining how to do it. And so nowhere in these verses do we find the word love, but they're a vivid example of the Father's protective parental love. God is setting some healthy boundaries for us. And he wants to help us learn how to live within them for our own good. What an incredible act of love. And so in verse 1, John starts with a general principle, which we might summarize this way. (laughs) Don't be gullible. (laughs) Just because someone shows up in the church and has a nice-sounding story, or a dramatic punchline when they teach. Don't get all caught up in emotion. Listen, but listen wisely. Listen with discernment. Assess the teacher to be sure what they're teaching lines up with God's truth. And how do we assess a teacher? The most basic way is to measure what they say against what God already has told us through the scriptures. Now, Bible teachers have a lot of material to work with, so teachers can cover a lot of ground and address a lot of issues. But in verse 2 of our passage, John cuts right to the heart of the matter. He tells us that true Christian teaching, true Christian proclamation, begins with a true confession of who Jesus is. 
and it's based on what Scripture has taught us about Jesus. Jesus Christ was God in human form. That is the truth. That is biblical. And so if someone affirms that core truth about Jesus, then we know that they're beginning from a solid foundation. And if they don't affirm that Jesus was God in the flesh, then no matter what else they may say, no matter how good it may sound, they're not promoting the Jesus of the Bible and they're not trustworthy. Now, when we talk about Jesus being God in the flesh, it's important for us to all be on the same page about what that means and why it's so important. So let me explain. First, Jesus was fully human. And as a result, he faced every single temptation known to humanity. Whatever we face, whatever urges we feel, Jesus knows what that's like. But unlike us, Jesus never yielded. He was sinless. And then second, Jesus was fully God, which means he was perfect in his creation. And for those two reasons, Jesus, and only Jesus, was worthy to die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins. This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to accomplish. And if someone will not affirm that foundational fact, then we can't trust them to speak truthfully about God. They're not following and presenting the Jesus of the Bible. So John focuses on that particular core issue because it's central to our faith. It's central to assessing a teacher. What do they believe about Jesus? But there's a second reason John highlights that. It's because this was a common source of false teaching in the first century. False prophets often said, oh, Jesus was God in spirit, but not in the flesh. He wasn't human. He was some other kind of spiritual being. And whoever proclaims that is lying. They're trying to deceive the church. And so John is warning the church to be alert for that form of spiritual deceit. It's good for us to be aware of that, but here's something else. That particular problem, that form of deceit, really isn't nearly as common today as it was in the first century. In fact, what's common in our day is almost the opposite kind of false teaching. There's a whole lot of people today who claim Jesus wasn't God at all. He was just a dude. A nice guy, a good moral teacher. So on the one hand, we had, he was God but not a person. On the other hand, a person but not God. They're both wrong, and they both contradict what Scripture teaches about Jesus. And so for our purposes, what we need to see is that while John's example is helpful and informative, we're not limited to that example. His point about assessing those who teach is important regardless of what particular form the potential deception may take. But what John does here is he shows us that looking to Scripture often is all we need to do to arrive at the correct conclusion about the truth 
of someone's message. Here's what scripture says about Jesus. Does your teaching line up with that? Yes? Good. It doesn't? Sorry. (laughs) Scripture can be our guide. But there's more to this issue because as John notes, the world is full of false prophets. And many of them, unfortunately, are very appealing. They show up and they're gifted with charisma. Oh, their speaking styles are captivating. And oftentimes, even in their deceit, they have very believable messages. And particularly for those who want to undermine the work of the kingdom of God, their goal is to be deceivers, which means they're going to be manipulative and they may not be honest about what they actually believe. And for this reason, sometimes assessing the message of a speaker against Scripture isn't enough. And that's why John tells us sometimes we need to go deeper and do more than just test the message. We need to test the spirits. Test the spirits, he says. So so what does that mean? It means we need to strive to discern the spirit behind the teacher. What motivates that teacher? Are they motivated by what John calls the spirit of the Antichrist, which is the spirit of Satan? Or are they empowered by the Holy Spirit? And guess what, brothers and sisters? We can't do that on our own. (laughs) We cannot test the spirits by ourselves. And so God graciously steps in to help us, and he does so in a unique way. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, the apostle Paul uh, offers a list of what are called spiritual gifts. And these are gifts that God gives to his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of those gifts are practical, like faith and wisdom. Some are supernatural, like miracles and prophecy. And one of those supernatural gifts is called the ability to distinguish between spirits. The ability to distinguish between spirits. Some Bible translations call it the discernment of spirits. However we translate it, here's what it means. When necessary, our loving Father will help His children discern whether someone's words and actions are motivated by the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the enemy of our souls. And so clearly that gift that Paul describes is given to us to do exactly what John is describing here. That gift enables us to test the spirits and see if they're from God. And there's been several times in my life when I've had to ask God to help me use that gift. Like the time I was listening to a teacher that I'd never heard before. And he was standing in a pulpit saying some novel things about God. Or like the time I was reading a book by a Christian author who was presenting me with some very unusual new perspectives on the Bible. Oh, it sounded good, seemed to make sense on the surface. But was it true? And so first I searched the scriptures to see if what they said lined up with God's teaching in the Bible. 
And in some cases, I still wasn't sure. And so I prayed and said, Heavenly Father, please help me distinguish the spirit behind this teacher. What's driving them? Are they led and motivated by the Holy Spirit? Or are they being deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist? And brothers and sisters, when we pray like that, God will hear and he will answer because he loves us. Our Father will protect us from false teaching that's motivated by false spirits. He'll help us discern truth from error. But we need to be wise enough and discerning enough to ask. To not get caught up in emotionalism, to not get lured by something that's new and unusual and exciting just because it's new and unusual and exciting. Some things that are new can be very good and of God. We've got to test the spirits. Lord, is this from you? Or is it from the enemy of my soul? Now, there's another part to the practice of spiritual discernment that's really important for us to grasp. You see, this, the, this ability to distinguish between spirits doesn't belong to any one of us alone. It's a gift that belongs to the whole church. And when we need to assess a prophet or a preacher or a teacher, the beautiful thing is we're not in it alone. We have the combined wisdom of the church of Jesus Christ to help us. And once again, we get some insight on this from the Apostle Paul. He describes this in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Now, Corinthians was a very interesting church, and there were men and women in that church who were recognized as having the gift of prophecy. Now, we think of prophecy as telling the future, but it's not always that. Prophecy is a distinctive spiritual gift, and a person who has that gift speaks words from God on behalf of God to the people of God for the purpose of instruction and encouragement. People like me, preachers and teachers, we're not, we're not prophets. My role is to try to explain God. Prophets claim to speak for God. And that's a significant difference. And it means that the words of a prophet are hugely influential, and it means that a prophet better get it right. And the church has a role to play in discerning whether or not the prophet gets it right. So here's the way this worked in Corinth. At various times when the church gathered for worship, the prophets would feel prompted by God to just speak up and offer some unplanned words of instruction or encouragement that they were convinced came from God in order to be spoken in that moment. And when someone stands up in church and says, I have a word from the Lord. When someone stands up and says, thus saith God. <laughs> However they present that, what's the church supposed to do? Just accept it? Uh-uh. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian believers. Chapter 14, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
In other words, the church assesses the words of the prophets. And why is that? It's because even if you have the gift of prophecy, you're still an imperfect human being. And you might stand up and say something in a particular moment because in your own imperfect humanity, you're just feeling the need for some attention. Or you might hear something from God, but then you distort it because what he said doesn't line up with your own personal preferences. Here's the point. Even a recognized prophet, someone who's known as a true prophet, a prophet of God, we're not talking about false prophets, even a recognized prophet still must be assessed. And who does the assessment? The church. The church acting together. The prophets speak. And the church as a group then weighs what is said. Was that really from God? The church discerns whether or not the prophet in that moment was speaking God's truth. So that's how Paul instructed the Corinthians. And guess what? John is saying the same thing here in our passage. And we know that because when he says you in this passage, that word you, we often miss it in our English translations because we use you to mean you and we use you to mean you. And the apostles almost always, not exclusive, but almost always when they say you, they don't mean you and you and you and you. They mean you. It's a plural pronoun. It's not singular. John wants us to know that testing the spirits is not something we have to do alone. We test the spirits together. And I don't know about you, but I, that, that takes a huge load off me. Because <laughs> it means the ultimate responsibility to assess a teacher to assess the falseness or trueness of what someone is proclaiming. It doesn't lie with me. It doesn't lie with you. It lies with us. The collective wisdom of the church. The collective discernment of God's children. By the way, one really powerful tool of assessment is to let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. And guess what? We've just done that very thing. We've read some things here from the Apostle John. And then we turned and we gleaned some truth from the Apostle Paul. And we've seen how Paul's teaching lines up with and helps explain the teaching of John. And in that we see the unity of their teaching. And that's encouraging. And it's powerful. And it's a testimony to the fact that all Scripture is inspired by God. And it all holds together. And it's all given for our good. When we're confused about Scripture, sometimes another Scripture gives us the light that we need to interpret the Scripture that we're wrestling with. And so what we have here is the Apostle John with an assist from the Apostle Paul helping us understand that one of the marks of a healthy church 
is that we practice spiritual discernment. We help each other assess truth versus deceit. And we start by assessing those who teach or who claim to speak for God. However, since we're all in this together, then we also need to assess ourselves. Let's pick this up in verse 4. Whoops. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> Little children. I've commented on this before, but I love when John calls us that. Little children. And as I've also said before, some Bible translations say, dear children, and I really like to put those together. We are God's dear little children. It's a great reminder of who we are and that we are in relationship with an awesome heavenly Father. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Who's the them? It's those false teachers who are being led by the spirit of Antichrist. You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, the false teachers, the false prophets, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He's referring there to the apostles. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. Now there's something really interesting going on in this text here. Maybe you caught it. In, in the first few verses, John says, test the spirits. Got to test the spirits so you don't buy into the message of false teachers. He's warning the church. But now here in this section, he says, oh, you've already overcome those people. <laughs> You, you haven't given in to the people with the spirit of the Antichrist. And so when I see things like that that appear to be intentional, I find myself asking questions. And here's the question that occurs to me. If the believers already have been victorious, if they've already successfully discerned truth from error, as John says they have, then why did he need, need to exhort them to test the spirits in the first place? In other words, it's almost like he's saying, watch out, this could be a problem. Oh, well, wait, I guess it's not really a problem after all. I, I don't think that's what John's trying to communicate. You see, even though these believers are currently successful in their spiritual discernment, there's no guarantee they will always be successful in their spiritual discernment. John warns them so they will not become complacent. So here's how I would put together the Bruce White paraphrase of John to help me make sense of this. He's saying, hey church, you're doing great. However, the spirit of the Antichrist is ever present. So never stop testing the spirits. Always assess those who claim to speak for God to be sure they're led by the Holy Spirit. As I think about this, maybe a way to help make sense of this is to go back to the analogy of the parents who build the fence around their front yard to protect their kids. 
And here's something we know about parents. No matter how good those kids are at consistently playing inside the fence, we know those parents will still regularly warn the kids about the danger of the busy street outside the fence. They'll never stop warning the kids. Outside that fence is a busy street. Don't go out there. It's dangerous. Why do the parents do that? Because current success is no excuse for future complacency. And that's true in the physical realm and it's true in the spiritual realm. And therefore, we need to keep assessing ourselves to make sure that we live within the healthy guardrails that God has established for us. And it's good for us to keep asking questions like these. Are we listening to God? Or are we getting sidetracked with the wisdom of the world? Are we being lured away from God by false ideas that come from the spirit of the Antichrist? Or are we following the teaching of the apostles as revealed in the scriptures? You know, and if we step back and look at this, the challenge to discern truth from error, the challenge not to get caught up in all of the stuff the world throws at us and all of the deceit and lies about spiritual truth, it's a lot to handle. It's a lot to assess. But we don't need to feel overwhelmed by that because we're not flying solo. Once again, here in verses 4 to 6, just as he did in verses 1 through 3, John writes the entire thing with plural pronouns. Which means his advice is not just for me and it's not just for you. This advice is for us, the church. And just as John said to those first century believers, he can say to us, greater is the one who is in you than the one who's in the world. Which means together we can overcome whatever the world sends our way. One of the challenges we face as American Christians is our individuality. We live and are raised in a highly individualized culture and our worldview then often is shaped around self. And as a result, it's easy for us to undervalue the importance of our life together in this unique spiritual community called the church. And yet John emphasizes the importance of spiritual community throughout this passage. He does it again and again and again. And he's not alone. The Apostle Paul, the other biblical writers, all emphasize the importance of us. And it's particularly important in the area of spiritual discernment. Because you and I all have a role to play in helping each other follow the path of truth. No one person has a lock on all of it. But as we stick to each other and stick to God, he will help us figure it out together. And we need to be attentive to one another to help each other walk God's path of truth. 
And sometimes we can tilt the scale too far in one direction. And as we start to become concerned about each other, we might become judgmental toward each other. And that's not the answer either. I'm not your judge and you're not mine, but we do have a loving obligation to help each other stay spiritually healthy. To stay spiritually healthy in what we believe and to stay spiritually healthy in how we live. So if we see a brother or sister in Christ getting caught up in spiritual error, starting to buy into deceit that goes against what God teaches about himself or about his kingdom, that's a time to speak up. If we see a brother or sister in Christ engaging in behavior that's harmful to themselves or harmful to others because it's not in line with God's purposes for how we live, then it's a time to speak up in a loving and gracious way. We can express our concern to one another to strive to help each other stay on the path that God has laid out for us. And this is one very practical way in which we can assess ourselves so that no one gets lured away by the deceit of the spirit of the Antichrist. We can, we can help each other listen to God. We can help each other discern truth from error. Together we can practice spiritual discernment. And what's the result? The result is a strong and healthy church full of strong and healthy believers. The result is a church that sticks to God and sticks to each other. It's a daunting task. But brothers and sisters, we can do this together. We can do this because as John tells us, greater, greater is the one who is in you. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. And in his power, and in his strength, we can walk the path of truth and stay there until we stand one day before Jesus. Please pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful for your loving care. We're grateful that you want to guard us and protect us to keep us from being lured away by deceivers. And I pray, Father, that we would be ever more devoted to reading the Bible so we can know your truth and have your truth embedded deeply in our minds. And Father, help us as necessary to test the spirits so we can discern those who are being led by the Holy Spirit and turn away from those who are being led by the spirit of deceit and destruction. And may we find great encouragement, Father, in the fact that we don't walk the life of faith alone. We have the privilege of leaning on each other and leaning on you 
and living each day together in your power. Please, Lord, watch over us. Protect us. Hold us firmly in your hand. And may we never, ever let go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.